0: Our Father and our God, we thank you for the privilege that you have blessed us with this day to be able to gather corporately in this place. We pray, Father, that you would meet with us by your Spirit, that he would do the work that only he can do of opening eyes to see the truth, of understanding this truth so that we might rightly apply it to our life. We thank you, Father, that you have given us your word. We thank you, Father, that you have blessed us with a Bible that we can read and we can understand. And we pray, Father, that as we open your word and as we study it this day, that truth would be driven into our heart by your spirit and that it would produce fruit that is pleasing to you. We pray for the salvation of sinners, Father, wherever the gospel is proclaimed today. We thank you for our brother Tiago as he preaches there in Portugal. That you would fill him with your spirit and use him and give him the strength and energy that he needs. And we do pray for his return, that all would go well, that he would not miss any of his flights, but he would come back safely tomorrow. We thank you also, Father, for your goodness in our members' life. We think of Seth and Ashley and their new baby, Sarah. We pray, Father, that you would continue to bless them, that you would strengthen Ashley, help the children to adjust to this new one in their home. We thank you, Father, for all going well with Nelson's surgery and him able to be with us today continue to heal his body and strengthen him. We thank you, Father, for bringing Tiffany and her family back here for this season while her husband is away there in Japan, and we pray that your blessings would be upon him, that you would watch over him, and that you would strengthen him, keep him from sin, and use him for your glory and honor there in Japan. We pray also for our brother Bob and ask that you strengthen his body sustain him by your grace and mercy. Other needs, Father, that you know of that may not have been mentioned, we pray that you work in each of those situations to bring honor and glory to your name. We pray, Father, also for those that are unable to be with us today because of sickness, that your healing hand would be upon their body and that you would sustain them. We pray, Father, for those that are away from us this day, that you would watch over them, bless them as they worship elsewhere, bring them back and give them safety as they travel. We also pray for those that would not be here due to lack of concern for their own spiritual needs. Father, pray that you would work in their life, bring conviction so that they would see the need to fellowship with the brethren so that they might grow in grace. Again, we thank you for such a great salvation that is found in Christ and him alone. And it's in His name that we pray. Amen. Take your Bibles and turn with me again back to Mark chapter 11, and we'll pick up where we left off last week. Mark chapter 11, beginning with verse 12, and then we will jump over to verse 20. Mark chapter 11, beginning with verse 12. Now today, next day, when they had come out from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing from afar a fig tree having leaves, he went to see if perhaps he would find something on it. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And in verse 20. Now in the morning, I'm sorry, let's go back to verse 14. In response, Jesus said to it, let no one eat fruit From you ever again. And his disciples heard it. Now verse 20. Now in the morning as they passed by. They saw the fig tree dried up from the root. And Peter remembering. Said to him. Rabbi look. The fig tree which you cursed. Has withered away. Come June I enjoy. Going across the street to our neighbors, many of you know Miss Frazier, who's visited with us often, 96 years old, she has a fig tree. And I guess in one sense to keep her from climbing her ladder and getting up in that fig tree, I go over there and pick figs to try to beat the birds to it. And then I fill up a bucket and I give Miss Frazier some and I carry the rest home and I ask my sweet wife to make me fig preserve mixed with strawberry mix I guess my grandmother is the one that got me started on figs my grandmother graves my mother's mother I can remember her fixing those homemade biscuits and she taught me how to make homemade biscuits one day I went over to her house and I said grandmother you have any biscuits she says no but come in here I want to teach you how to make biscuits you know, words, I guess she was saying, you quit coming over and asking me to make biscuits for you, but I couldn't make them like her. But anyway, she would make those biscuits and, and then coat them with butter and then put those figs on it. That might be making you hungry. It makes me hungry as I think about it. They were delicious. I enjoyed biscuits and fig preserves. Now, as we think about this passage this morning, this is the first time that I've actually ever preached on this passage, Jesus cursing the fig tree. Now, I must admit, when I first read these verses, I wondered, how in the world am I going to preach a 22-minute sermon on these verses? Well, you know I could preach a 20-minute sermon on anything. And, of course, you're not going to get a 22-minute sermon, and you know that. I guess I could tell you that I learned that there's five different kinds of figs. I was wondering if the figs that they had over in the Far East are the same kind of figs that we have here in the West. There's similarities. But I learned that there is an Adriatic fig, which is a pale green fig. There's a black Mission fig, which is a dark purple, very, very sweet one. There's brown turkey figs. Now, that's the ones that evidently we have at Ms. Fraser's house and probably at your house as well. And then there's a katamara fig, which is the largest one. Now, that must be the one over in the east. And then there's a cato, a cato which is a like green fig. So there's various figs. I didn't know that, so in learning and studying, I learned something new, and now maybe you have too. Also, a fig tree can grow to 20 feet tall and as wide as that 20 feet. So they can be very big and they have large leaves. Children, where's the first time we ever heard about fig leaves? In the book of Genesis. Remember Adam and Eve, they had sinned and after they sinned, what did they do? They realized that they were naked and they took fig leaves and they sold them together to make clothes. Now, like I said, I picked those figs, and I don't like to touch the leaves, and I can't imagine having fig leaf clothes. It'd be kind of itchy. But anyway, we see that fig leaves are mentioned there in the beginning of Genesis and throughout the Scripture. Matter of fact, figs and tree, fig trees are mentioned over 50 times in Scriptures, and often it refers to Israel. Last week we saw that as Jesus entered into Jerusalem... The people began to praise him and cry out, Hosanna, Hosanna, as he rode the young coat into the city of Jerusalem. And they were throwing their garments and they were throwing the palm leaves before him so that as he went down the road, the little coat was walking on them and they were praising Jesus. And then we saw that he arrived at the temple. And we thought, well, what's going to transpire now? We thought that maybe He would give a speech, but we saw that He simply told His disciples, it's time to go back to Bethany. And Mark tells us, now the next day, when they had come out of Bethany, that Jesus was hungry. And He saw this tree at a distance, this fig tree at a distance, full of leaves, and He went over to find something to satisfy His hunger. As often mentioned, we see that the gospel writers do not tell us all the things that transpired as far as Jesus was concerned. We looked at that last week. And we have a little bit of a difference between what Matthew says and what Mark says. There's no contradiction. It's just presented to us in, in a little bit of a different way because this is the only two gospels that record this event of the cursing of the um, fig tree there in Matthew Twenty-one verses 18 through 22. Now, the differences, of course, that are mentioned there can be easily explained. And, of course, we know that there are no contradictions in scriptures. And we also have in Luke chapter 13, 6 through 9, the parable of the fig tree, which also has some similarities to this particular passage that we have here. So we see that as Jesus and the disciples head back to Jerusalem, Jesus sees this fig tree far off and he goes over there. It's it's springtime and figs are not produced until a little bit later in June. And Mark tells us that in this particular passage when he says it was not the season for figs. But, that doesn't mean there wasn't anything to be on the tree. Even on this tree, we know that there wasn't, but that doesn't mean Jesus wasn't to expect anything. Listen to what the commentator and scholar F.F. Bruce says. Fig trees produce tash. Uh, That's a Hebrew word, I guess, for an early fig. Before the season, if they are going to bear fruit in the season itself, since this one did not, It was a sign that it would not produce any fruit later that year. He continues and he says, Tash is what develops on a fig tree in the spring on the previous year's shoot growth in contrast. The main fig crop develops on the current year's shoot growth and ripens in the late summer or fall. So we see that this fig tree... Even though it had all of these leaves, it was fully with full with leaves, it should have had these early figs, these tash that he mentions. But yet when Jesus inspects it and he looks for this on the fig tree, none are there. Though it was full of expectation, as he looked at the leaves, he thought he was going to find food, but yet... There was nothing to satisfy his hunger. So what does Jesus do? He shows his displeasure by immediately cursing it. And it completely withers to never yield fruit again. Now this kind of takes us back, does it not? I mean, here's Jesus cursing a fig tree. That had not harmed anyone, but I guess you could say in one sense it harmed the Lord because it did not provide the food that he desired from it. Now, of course, the liberals have interesting things to say about what Jesus did here, and I'm not going to waste your time or my time in saying what the liberals say. You can look it up if you'd like to. But some see what Jesus did as strikingly out of character. I mean, this is the one who welcomed the children was compassionate to those who were sick. He was the healer, compassionate healer. He was the storm calmer. And now we see that he's cursing a fig tree simply because it does not have this early fruit upon it and it immediately begins to die. At least in the parable there in Luke chapter 13, we see that it gave that tree the opportunity to grow when the farmer said, let me have one more year to fertilize it and dig around it. But here we see instantly Jesus curses it. So what do we learn from this particular event? Well, traditional Christian scholars state that the account affirms both Jesus' humanity and His deity. And that's very obvious we see that Jesus was hungry. In other words, He was a human being like you and me. We are getting hungry, right? We may even smell the fragrance coming from the fellowship hall, the food, and we're looking forward to that. And some of you may be thinking, if you would hush, we could get back there quicker. Well, let me encourage you to delight in the spiritual food first before you get the physical food. We're looking forward to the physical food. But we need the spiritual food first. So Jesus, just like us, was a human being. He was 100% human being and 100% deity. We see the deity of Jesus Christ with His authority. He had the authority to, to do what? To simply speak to the tree. And as a result of speaking to the tree, it immediately begins to die. That's the authority that He has. We don't have that authority. I mean, if any of you think that you have that authority, I want to stand around when you speak to a tree and I want to watch it die. It's not going to happen. You don't have that kind of authority. But Jesus did, which shows that He was truly God of God. But what is the spiritual meaning of this passage? Well, traditional reformers state that this event by Jesus reveals the end of the exclusive covenant between God and God and the Jewish people, the physical nation of Israel, because it did not produce any fruit. According to Reformed theology, this tree is a sign of the Jewish nation, that it had outward appearance. I mean, if you looked at it, it looked like it had godly dignity. What was that? Well, that was the leaves. But, It did not produce any fruit for the glory of God. There was no fruit. Listen to what Matthew Henry says. The fig tree had no fruit, soon lost its leaves. This represents the state of the nation and people of the Jews in particular. Our Lord Jesus Christ found among them nothing but leaves. Now, this event also has an object lesson, and that is the faithfulness of prayer. In verses 22 through 26, which we did not read, but we will look at a sermon on that later. But more is going on behind the scenes than than we realize. See, the fig tree cursing is a sober warning for all of us today. In at least two ways. First of all, we see that the fruitlessness brings biblical judgment. Fruitfulness, fruitlessness brings biblical judgment. In the Old Testament, Israel is often described as God's vineyard. We read that just a moment ago in Isaiah chapter 5, 4 and 5. It spoke about God's vineyard. It's also spoken of as a tree. It's spoken of planting. Here are some passages and uh, maybe we're just simply tuning up our children or helping them as far as their Bible drill is concerned. So children, make sure you have your Bibles and you can follow along in these passages and that will help you for this coming Wednesday night when you are with your Bible drill teacher. In Judges 9, verses 8 through 15, it says... The tree once went forth to anoint a king over them. And they said to the olive tree, Reign over us. But the olive tree said to them, Should I cease giving my oil with which they honor God and men, and go and sway over trees? Then the tree said to the fig tree, You come and reign over us. But the fig tree said to them, Shall I cease my sweet and my good fruit? And go and sway over the trees. And then the trees said to the vine, You come and reign over us. But the vine said to them, Shall I cease the new wine, which cheers both God and man, and go and sway over trees? Then one of the trees said to the bramble, You come and reign over us. But the bramble said to the trees, If in truth you anoint me as king over you, then come and take shelter in my shade. But if not, let fire come out on the bramble and devour the cedar of Lebanon. And then turn to Isaiah chapter 5, what we read earlier in verses 1 through 7. So I'm not going to read those again, but that's the other passage that speaks of a vineyard and a tree. And then turn on over to Ezekiel chapter 19. Ezekiel chapter 19 beginning in verse 10. Your mother was like a vine in your bloodline, planted by the waters, fruitful and full of vines because of many waters. She had strong branches for septicers of rulers. Her towers of statue above the thin branches, thick branches, and was seen in her height amidst the dense foment fog foliage but she was plucked up in fury she was cast down to the ground and the east wind dried her fruit her strong branches were broken and withered the fire consumed them and now she is planted in the wilderness in a dry and thirsty land fire has come out from a rod of her branches and devoured her fruit so that she has no strong branches a scepter for ruling So do you see that time and time again and there's many other passages we could read that in the Old Testament Israel is looked upon as a fig tree as a vineyard as being planted Now, of course, all of the Israelites knew that the first fruits were to be brought to the Lord. That when the harvest was done, the first fruit belonged to God. Now, also, God's people knew that it was required of them to yield spiritual fruit. But their fruitlessness wasn't, or their fruitfulness wasn't the basis of the relationship. Their relationship to God was. Is what brought about the fruitfulness, not vice versa. Not because they were fruitful that they had their relationship with God. It was because they had a relationship with God that they were fruitful. Now, the lack of this fruitfulness is a sign of God's curse upon the nation of Israel, their rebellion. Deuteronomy eleven seventeen 17 says, Lest the Lord's anger be aroused against you, And He shut you up the heaven, so that there was no rain, and the land yields no produce, and you perish quickly from the good land which the Lord is giving you. And then Isaiah 27, 6 reveals that the time had come for Israel to bear fruit and bless the world. It says, those who come, He shall cause them to root in Jacob. Israel shall blossom and bloom and fill the face of the world with fruit. So the Old Testament prophets preached this and taught this. And they described God as the one who was the inspector of Israel's early figs, revealing their spiritual fruitfulness. But when God comes and He inspects Israel, what does He find? No first right figs that my soul desires, the scripture says. So as a result, what does God do? Well, He curses Israel. He curses them for their fruitlessness. And He calls them a rotten fig, which led their exile into Assyria and Babylon. And then we read in Hosea, Hosea chapter 9. You keeping up with me, children? Hosea chapter 9, verse 16 and 17. Ephraim is stricken. Their root is dried up. They shall bear no fruit. Yes, were they to bear children, I would kill their beloved fruit of their womb. My God will cast them away because they did not obey Him and they shall be wanderers among the nation. And then Jeremiah says in twenty nine seventeen, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, Behold, I will send on them the sword, famine and pestilence, and will make them like rotten figs that cannot be eaten. They are so bad. But we see in numerous passages that God promises to one day replant Israel, to rebirth them, so that they produced healthy figs for Israel. Joel says in 2.22, Do not be afraid, you beast of the field, for the open pastures are springing up, and the trees bear its fruit, the fig tree and the vine yields their strength. Now these same truths are found in, and you can write these down, we would not look at them, in Amos 9.14, Micah 4.4, 4, Zechariah 8.12, and Ezekiel 36.8. All of them make reference to the fig tree and that they are to produce fruit. Now even though the Old Testament gives this information, And the disciples should have known this information. We see that they do not grasp it. They do not understand what Jesus is doing when He curses the fig tree. They didn't see that the cursing of the fig tree by Jesus was a reenactment of God punishing and bringing divine judgment on Israel for their unfaithfulness, for their fruitlessness. So this fruitless fig tree points us back to what Jesus said earlier in His ministry. When God's people were called to produce spiritual fruit. Now let's look at those passages in the New Testament, which speaks of fruit. In Matthew 3, verses 8 through 10 Therefore, bear fruit worthy of repentance and do not think to say to yourself, we have father Abraham. For I say to you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. And even now the axe is laid to the root of the tree. Therefore, every tree which does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And then Jesus continues on over in chapter 7 in verses 16 and following. You will know them by their fruit. Do men gather grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Even so, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Therefore, by their fruit you shall know them. And then in chapter 13, verse 8, Jesus says, But others, and this is the parable of the sower... But others fell on good ground and yielded a crop, some a hundredfold, sixty, and some thirty. So, here we have Jesus, who the day before had wept over Jerusalem, had gone into Jerusalem, had been praised. Hosanna had been said to Him over and over again. And as He goes into Jerusalem and experiences this great celebration there, the people have no idea who He is and what He's going to do. They do not grasp it. Not even His disciples grasp what He's doing. They were totally ignorant of the purpose of Jesus. And Jesus arrives to expose their fruitlessness. And He brings this about so that they might understand the true meaning of what it means to be in the covenant, in the true covenant. And how He will bring about a real lasting restoration. That He will produce real fruit in the kingdom of God by establishing the new covenant. Now Jesus displays his anger not only at this tree that was fruitless, but he also displays his anger where? Well, we didn't read read that passage this morning, but we'll be looking at it next week. But we see there in Mark chapter 11 that he also expresses his anger and displeasure there at the temple. They have taken the temple of God, and as Jesus says, that you've made it a den of thieves. So therefore, we see that he goes in, he turns over the tables, he runs them out with a whip, saying that you have made my Father's house, which is a house of prayer, into a den of thieves, because of the Jewish formality that they had, but there was no righteousness. Lots of leaves... But no fruit. So, what Jesus is doing by cursing this tree is demonstrating divine judgment with these two acts. That act of cursing the fig tree points to what? It points to the passing of the old covenant. And we have the second act of cleansing the temple, which points to what? It points to the destruction of the temple. So those two things are seen in these two passages of Scripture. So Jesus is warning them of the coming destruction of the temple because of their shamefulness in not producing fruit. That their religion was a sham. They loved their power. They loved being exalted by men. They loved exaltation. And Jesus exposes them here in this particular situation there in the temple. And we see that they hate it, what Jesus said, because they do what? They seek to put Him to death. They don't want to hear the truth. So how does this apply to us? How does this passage speak to your life and my life? Well, what we must do is we must think about our own figs. All is not lost. When, when the disciples ask Jesus to explain what has just happened, what does He do? He begins to speak about prayer. Now why? Because even though they don't understand Him fully, they need to understand what they will be doing pretty soon. That they will be taking the place of those in authority there in Jerusalem. The religious leaders, they will become the new teachers of God's people. The parallel passage there in Matthew chapter 21, verse 43 says, Jesus is speaking to the religious leaders and here's what He says to them there at the temple. Therefore, I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken from you so he's telling the religious leader, it's going to be taken from you and it's going to be given to a nation bearing the fruit of it. So he's saying now it's going to be given to true believers. It's going to be given to those who have been made new creatures, speaking of the apostles. The disciples will be the instruments that God uses to bring about this transformation From the Old Covenant to the New Covenant, these disciples will begin to extend branches throughout the world and bring forth fruit from all nations. Now, when did this begin? You know when it began. It began at Pentecost. They get up and they begin to preach. And there at Pentecost, you see that there's representatives from all nations. So Jesus teaches them that they will be able to accomplish great things. But those great things are accomplished by what? By prayer. That they must be men of prayer. Think about the book of Acts. What happens in chapter 1 of the book of Acts? After Jesus comes and Jesus speaks to them and Jesus leaves? what do they do? They gather in the upper room. And they... Gathered together, and it says there in verse 14, these all continued in one accord in prayer and supplication with the women, Mary the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. So there in the upper room, they gathered together, and they began to do what? They began to pray. And as a result of prayer, what happened? Pentecost came about. And we see the beginning of the fulfillment of what Jesus is saying there in verse 43 of Matthew 21. So the cursing of the fig tree isn't just about historical Israel. It's also about us. It's also about you and me whom God has called throughout history. And the Old Testament expected God's covenant people to bring forth fruit, but it did not. But the mandate of bearing forth fruit is intensified in the New Covenant, in the New Testament. That's what we see in John chapter 4, verse 36. Jesus speaks, He says, Every branch in me that does not bear fruit will be taken away, and every branch that does bear fruit will be pruned, that it may bear more fruit. So He tells us what? Those who do not bear fruit, even in the New Testament, will be cut off and thrown into the fire. But those who bear fruit, He will prune and He will bring forth more fruit. So all whom God makes into a new creature must bring forth fruit. This passage just doesn't remind us that a Christian, by definition, must produce spiritual fruit, even though it may be early fruit, just like that tree that Jesus was speaking to, it was to be producing early fruit, might be small fruit, but it also is a threat and of and temptation toward false pretenders of fruit. See, the fig tree, like the busy temple there that we'll look at next week, all the commotion that was going on in the temple during the Passover, what was it doing? It was putting on a good show. I mean, it looked like a great religious festival. The people had welcomed Jesus into Jerusalem. There was millions there celebrating the Passover they were demonstrating their religion. It looked great. Now this may be worst of all. Now what do I mean by that? It is one thing to lack fruit out of season. But it's another thing to lack it while you pretend that you have it. And that's what was going on here. I mean, this should be a warning to all of us. Our personal lives may look leafy. Our leaves may look like we are a super mom, a winner, have a perfect family, that we are a team Christianity. But looks can be deceiving. What am I saying? Our lives can be filled with all kinds of ministry activities. But the root can wither because it's dead. And if it's dead, then there's no fruit of holiness. There's no intimacy with God. And even worse, our leaves may fool us. Our leaves can even fool us as Christians. And that's what we see in the passage that I mentioned often there in Matthew chapter 7. We read part of it earlier. Picking up there with verse 16. Jesus says, you will know them by their fruit. Do men gather grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Even so, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Therefore, by your fruit you shall know them. And then what does he say? Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven. But he, what? Who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many works in your name? See, leaves, lots of leaves prophesied, cast out demons, wonder works, wonderful works. And then what? Then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. They had a lot of leaves, but they had no fruit, is what Jesus is saying there. They were pretenders. Churches can do the same. A church can look impressive. Grow in attendance. Attendance above average giving, impressive music, aggressive evangelism, inspiring pastors. But what does Jesus find is the question. In Revelation, we see that Jesus gives a close inspection of the seven churches there, remember? And as He inspected the seven churches there, the majority of them were lacking. They were lacking in producing real godly fruit. He rebuked every one of them except for one church. My question is, if he inspected our church, what would he find? Most of you read Pilgrim's Progress, and in Pilgrim's Progress, there's this one character called Mr. Talkative. I mean, he had an opinion about everything. Any religious subject you bring up, he would have an opinion about it. He could talk to you for hours. He was very fluent in discussing things of religion. But all of his talk was leaves. There was no fruit. And there are many religious people who have regrets of how they have lived, but they have no true repentance, only worldly sorrow, no godly sorrow. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 7.10, For godly sorrow produces repentance, leading to salvation, not to be regretted. But the sorrow of the world produces death. Now I might be able to get you to regret some of the things that you've done in your life. I could start talking about certain sins that we probably all have committed and we may regret them. We may be sorry about them. But the question is, have we truly repented of them? Now this afternoon, that's primarily what we're going to look at, the fruit of repentance, a continuation of this sermon, my last point I saved for this afternoon. So it won't be a long sermon, so don't worry. It mainly just dwell on what is godly repentance. What is Jesus talking about as far as fruit of repentance that we are to bear forth? But we have to understand that I'm not the one that brings conviction. It's the Word of God. It's the Holy Spirit that brings about conviction into a person's life. It's the Holy Spirit working in a person's life to open their eyes, to cause them to see the filth of their sin. To cause them to see that they have sinned against a holy God. To cause them to see that that God would justly send them to an everlasting hell because of your sins. Because all that you have done that has broken the law of God. He must open your eyes to see the filth of your sin so that you will cry out in biblical repentance so that you will have godly sorrow which leads to salvation. And of course we see it often demonstrated in Scripture. When Jesus talked to the woman at the well, And he pointed out to her quite clearly that she had committed adultery over and over and over again. And we see that she experienced repentance. We see it also in the life of Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus is stolen. And we see after Jesus had a meal with him, and we know that when Jesus had that meal, he must have shared the gospel with him because we see the response of Zacchaeus and what he wanted to do. He was broken over his sin, and he wanted to do that which was right. He produced fruits of righteousness in his life. We saw it in the demoniac. Remember, a few, well, what not a few months ago, but a number of months ago when we looked at the story of the demoniac when his life was radically changed. He no longer was cutting himself. He no longer was acting like a maniac, but he wanted to follow Jesus. We see that in the woman caught in adultery. Jesus tells her what? Go and sin no more. We see it in the life of Mary Magdalene. We see it in the life of Paul, who was chasing Christians down and putting Christians in jail and seeking to put Christians to death. And he was radically changed and he repented. And instead of putting Christians to death, he began to love Christians and serve Christians and preach to Christians. When our sorrow for sin is real repentance, then there will be fruit of righteousness in our life. Listen to... I'm not sure who said this. Matter of fact, I went back and tried to find in my notes and I could not find who said it. I found it somewhere. I was looking at so much stuff this week. Maybe you can find it for me. Tell me who the author of this is. But anyway, I think it might have been Jeff Thomas. If our brief sorrow for sin were real repentance, then what other fruit would also be present in our life? Humility would be there thanksgiving to Jesus for His shed blood, a holy, modest walk in life, such fruit meet for repentance. But it is not so. You are leaves only and no fruit. Horatius Barner said, our faith is in vain. Our religion is in vain. Our hope is in vain. Our Bible reading is in vain. Our church membership is in vain. Our life is in vain. How patient God is with us. As He was for 120 years with that generation which listened to the preaching of Noah before the flood. He was waiting for them to repent. He smote none of them until finally that world had filled up all its sin, and then the fountain of the deep opened up, and the heavens were rent, and the great cascade of judgment began. May it not be so with you. Beware, beware, fruitless trees will not stand forever forever. However old, beautiful, or revered they are, we must all one day die. God's mercy waters you with His tears. The husband, Jesus Christ, spare him for one more year and I will dug the tree. And perhaps in this next year there will be fruit at last. There was just one fig tree smitten by Christ that none might despair but there was one that none might presume. Let me close by asking you this question. Are you presuming? Are you presuming that you are in Christ? Paul exhorts us to examine ourselves, to make sure we are in the faith. Don't presume that you are in Christ. Look and see if there is real fruit, fruit of repentance, fruit of righteousness that is pleasing to God so that you realize you have this intimate relationship with Christ Himself. For He is the only one that can produce true fruit in our life. Let us pray. Father, we thank You that You are a gracious and merciful God who saves His people from their sin. And we pray, Father, that we would examine ourselves this morning to make sure that we've come to that point to where we have truly repented of our sin, that we have had a change of mind, that we have turned our backs on sin, and that we are now pursuing holiness because of the work of Christ in our life by His Spirit. Do not allow us, Father, to be deceived like the religious leaders of Jesus' day, like many in the old covenant who were trusting in their father Abraham as far as their physical relationship and not understanding that they must have a spiritual relationship. Calls us, Father to examine ourselves to see if we have that spiritual relationship with Christ because His Spirit has opened up our eyes to show us our sinfulness and caused us to flee to Christ in faith and to look to Him and Him alone for our salvation. And it's in His name that we pray. Amen.